I want to thank you for praying for my father. I have a picture of my dad 24 hours after his surgery. <laughs> understand something. This is a real enjoyable, this is a, a, a miracle for our family. My father had a golf ball-sized brain, brain tumor lodged between his brain stem and his spine. And they were able to get all of it. And 24 hours later, he's sitting up in his bed reading the newspaper. Now, my dad's a fighter by nature, so that helps, but God has been particularly gracious to us. Uh, my dad was out of ICU inside of a day and uh, has already left the hospital to go home to Tallahassee, which is my hometown, uh, and he'll be in a rehab unit for two weeks. Now, part of the rehab problem is because in the surgery, they had this enormous incision they had to do from his head down through to the, the top of his spine. And, uh, and, it, and it cuts muscles and all sorts of things. And so his biggest concern right now is they're going to have to rehab getting his arm movement. And uh, he's concerned that he's not going to be able to swing a golf club anymore. So you can be praying about that. Um, on a side note, he'd actually like to come back and have added another 50 yards to his drive too. So if you want to include that in your prayer, um, we think that would be fun. And it seems that God's miraculously involved in a lot of this, so I wouldn't put it past the Lord to have my dad stand up on the tee two months from now and put one out there 300 yards for the first time in his life. So we're grateful. I, you know, I've talked to my dad, and he, you know, he, was, he was obviously nervous about this procedure, um, but he didn't look terrified. He, we prayed together as a family at 5 a.m. the morning of his surgery, and, and you know, he was as confident as... Uh, a follower of Jesus could be saying, you know, I believe that, you know, God is in charge and he's a risk taker by nature. So he was okay with uh, this preferred to the whatever was going to come if he left it in his in his skull. Um, and also I think about it in co- by contrast to something, a story my dad told me once about how he was really frightened once and that was he was with some friends on a boat in the Chesapeake Bay when uh a really bad storm came up. And uh, he said that was the only time he ever had feared for his life, where he was in this boat and the, and the waves are crashing over it and, and his friend who's quote-unquote piloting the boat, you know, you're, you're really not in control at that stage of the game. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt like uh, maybe it was on a vessel of some sort or, or some other circumstance where you felt like the the winds were pushing you and where you'd end up you didn't know and it was frightening and calamity seemed to be right there. See, that was a real terrifying experience for, for my dad, by contrast. Um, I think of boats a lot. I, I read leadership magazines. I read leadership literature. My dad is uh, a former political operative and has been a consultant over the balance of his retired career on issues of leadership and uh, the boat is a big metaphor that I use in terms of talking about leadership. In our elder training manual, we actually had uh, pictures drawn by a Disney graphic artist who used to go to our church you know, back in Orlando. I'll show you one of those later. But we, we work with the metaphor of a boat a lot because organizations without leadership are like boats without rudders or sails. They, you know, they just get bounced around. And even if they have sails... If they don't have a rudder, a really strong leading force, what happens is they just get blown about. And there's a sense of, like, uh, uh, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. Nothing but chaos and, 
And I've been a part of organizations, and unfortunately, many of us have been a part of churches where this was the sense, that it wasn't just that the waters were rough, that the metaphorical times were tough. It was that there was no way of controlling the direction of the vessel through all of those storms. And that is the lack of leadership. That is when you feel like, okay, our, in our case, a church is going this direction, now it's going this direction. Now some group has decided it wants to go this direction, now we're going to go this direction. And, and you just get this sense that we don't know what we're doing or why we're doing it. Today I come to continue our series in membership. We're going to wind it up next week, as a matter of fact. Hard to believe. It's been a nine-week series. It will serve as the de facto membership class for those who want to be a part of the first membership class of PRISM uh, next month. You'll get a, an email in the next week or two, which will give you all the information you need about what it would take to be a part of that process. Uh, today, I get to talk about the always sexy subject of church polity and church governance. That's kind of sort of supposed to be sarcastic. I realize I've been off for a week, so maybe I'm off my game a bit. But uh, when we talk about church governance, a lot of times people just like, oh, Lord, I would rather you talk about money. Well, that was last week, um, which is conveniently why I took time off, because um, isn't it fun that I didn't have to be there for that? The, uh, there are multiple models of church leadership in the world, and it, it's obviously we would as a church, like to think that ours was a biblical model. Now, I don't know any church that doesn't find a way to take Scripture and fold it around what they do in terms of leadership and say, ours is a biblical model of leadership. So for me to stand up here and say, well, here's a model of leadership, and here's a model of leadership, and here's a model of church leadership, ours, of course, is the biblical one, would be a bit much. I would hope you'd think that. I do believe that we take the direction about what our and how our church is governed actually from Scripture instead of trying to fold Scripture around it. And that would be a cheap distinction. <clears throat> In churches, perhaps you've been a part of some that would fit these various models. One would be that we have an authoritarian model of leadership where the belief would be that there would be a, a single leader who is a prophet, who is a you know, some type of mosaic figure. Incidentally, Moses had elders, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, somebody who they would say, based on some kind of a biblical picture, comes in and it just runs the show and, and nobody questions their authority. They are God's anointed and you're not to touch God's anointed. And this is prevalent in independent charismatic churches for sure because I was a part of a couple of them. There's a hierarchical model which is authority flowing from a source located elsewhere, meaning there's some kind of organizational institution, whether it be the Roman Catholic Church or the Episcopalian Church or any number of denominations that might have a very, very strong centralized place where all of the authority flows from this place out apart from your local church. This hierarchical model can be seen uh, in a number of denominations, and there is, of course, they think, a biblical methodology for that. Um, authority, though, is not located within the local congregation. There is a congregational model, which may at first make you think, hey, that's located here in the congregation. That's got to be a winner. Uh, this is the one where a congregation is ultimately allowed to vote on all issues of the church, uh, almost like a pure democracy. 
So if we're going to have a change in the color of the carpet, we've got to have a meeting to have a vote on whether or not we're going to make it blue or red. And you can imagine that in those kinds of environments, you have uh, quite a bit of division. There could be quite a few times where you get bogged down and it's very difficult to get anywhere because getting everybody on the same page, getting everybody's opinions to actually match up is almost impossible. And then once you start reducing everything to a vote, usually what happens is the, the group that lost gets mad and leaves and, and starts another church. And this just doesn't seem to be uh, harmonious or anything that seems consistent with how the, 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 the church should actually function in relationship with each other. And then that leaves us with in our world, what we call the elder-governed model. It's seen in Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, many non-denominational churches. We are part of a network of churches called the Acts 29 Network. Um, Our network of churches is committed to a biblical, what we call a model of male-servant leadership in terms of where we think and how we think the church should be governed. And I want to explain that today Because when we talk about things like what are the elders overseeing, the answer, obviously, because it's right in front of you, is that the the church's life and the people's souls. And we take that from a passage of Scripture in Hebrews. See, to understand why we think we should be governed this way, it's not just a matter, although I don't have any problem with somebody saying, well, listen, the Bible says in 1 1 Timothy 3, the passage that we'll be studying today, that this is how the church should be governed. Beyond that, there is a deeper, deeper principle involved, and that is that what we're creating here is a community of people that really function a lot like your family or like your family should. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Members at Prism Church will have to commit to trusting the collective wisdom of the group of leaders, the group of servant leaders called elders in our church, and agree to peacefully submit to their direction as it pertains to the life of our church. Now, this is a soft way of saying that we are all going to have to submit to our elders. We're going to have to trust that God is working through them, even when we think we might Make the carpet a different color. This is the case in any family. Somebody needs to be the final say or nothing will ever get done. There's, generally speaking, a lot of chaos. My family, back in 2012, made a decision. And when I say my family, I mean Carolyn and I, to move to Duarte to our dream house. Now, my kids' friends from high school were all in Arcadia, and so the initial reaction of my children was, what are you doing Well, Carolyn and I, collectively, because of our experience and wisdom, had known that our kids were going to graduate from high school in a couple years and likely not see any of their high school friends again, so we weren't going to plan our future family and our future family home around where their friends currently reside, and we couldn't afford Arcadia, California. So our kids were, like, really not happy about it. But years later now, because they really didn't have any say in the matter, they go, wow, this is such a great house. I'm glad we live here. I'm wishing that at the time they had gone, Father, we yield to your wisdom and find you enjoyable to trust and believe in. And it just wasn't that way. And unfortunately, sometimes in church, all of us are in a place where we're going, eh, wouldn't do it that way, but okay, what's the real big deal here? 
See, we're hoping that as a church, this is what we're going to actually manifest, a family where we make big deals out of big deals and not big deals out of things that are just trifling points of church life. A biblical model of leadership puts the hands into the uh, puts the authority into the hands of a plurality of God's elders. In our church, our elders will strive to allow the church to serve and have great autonomy over varying aspects of church life. The elders' priority is prayer, the teaching of Scripture, and caring for those who are serving the church and community. And we get this from Acts chapter six, where you can see the genesis, if you will of how the elder board was, was birthed by contrast to the diaconal teams, which is that the elders would focus on prayer and the word of God and the teaching of scriptures and the shepherding of souls. And we would have teams of people who would actually serve the varying needs of the community at large. When elders have to settle matters and when the direction of our church as a whole is in question, these elders are collectively empowered to make decisions for the church as a whole. We believe that Scripture teaches that this is a means of discerning God's will as it pertains to our church. We also believe that Scripture calls individuals to allow themselves to be held accountable by this body, by this community of elders, seeing it as a means of grace. You see, I know my own propensity to be rebellious, I know my own propensity to think I know what's right. I know my own sinful inclinations. And I especially know that I have within myself a, a, an ability, a natural inclination to put myself ahead of others. So, as is the case commanded by Scripture and by the network of churches to which I'm a part of as a pastor, in October, I by God's grace, and humbly, willingly turned over the authority of our church as one elder to a plurality of elders. I could have, in some really funky way, gone ahead and became an authoritarian model of a church and said, you know what, I'm in charge, you will follow my lead. And, and that would have been both unbiblical and unhealthy. I recognize my need for authority. A part of growing as a believer for all of us, is recognizing that we need to know that there are people that can hold us accountable if our thoughts and our actions become inconsistent with Scripture. And I know, as do our current elders, and likely why they are willing and were willing to be a part of our church as it started was because we were heading towards, we had said from the beginning, we are heading towards establishing a plurality of elders in this church. Now, this all comes around because our text today is from 1 Timothy, and Timothy was a church planter. Timothy came to a particular area, and as he had begun to develop a community of believers who were excited about Jesus, people coming to know Christ, being baptized, at a certain point, his mentor, the Apostle Paul, writes him this letter and says, now it's time to bring some form and function to the church. And so it is in this context, akin to our context, where he is telling Timothy, it's time to put elders in place. It's time to put some skeleton on the mass, or you're just going to be a big blob. For you to get anywhere, to do anything, for you to be a body, you have to have some structure. And so today, when we talk about gospel governance, there are two things listed in the very first verse of our scripture today. We're going to read all seven. 
But in the very first verse, there are two things I think we can extract that will encourage us as to why we think this is God's means of governing a church. As well, give us some insight into the passage itself. So let's begin by looking at this first point, which is aspiring to be an overseer is a good thing. This is the first verse of 1 Timothy 3. Let me read it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, I've always uh, thought this was an interesting verse because, um, you know, I, I at times wonder whether or not aspiring to be a leader in the church is a good thing. Maybe it's because I've struggled with my own pride and ego over the years, and you think, is it really a good thing for somebody to want to be an elder in a church? And in this passage, it seems to indicate that it's not only a good thing, it's, a, it's an amazingly holy, a noble task. And so in this, in this context, it's, it's pretty clear that it is okay if something in you is saying, I think I really want to be an elder, the saying is trustworthy. If you aspire to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So if a man says, I want to be an elder, something in his heart says, I desire that, that's a good thing. Now, oftentimes people want to be leaders for the wrong reasons. And this is why I think people are questions. Someone might want to be the president of the United States because they're a textbook narcissist who needs constant attention given by being on television 24 hours a day. Maybe. Maybe that's why some people seek leadership. They derive identity from leaving, from leading, and they live for the exercise of power over others. This is often why people, particularly men, want to be in leadership. They get a jolt out of getting to control other people, to exercise power and authority. But this is not what we're calling you to if you're an elder. This is not what an elder's role is. An elder's role is to be the toilet cleaner, metaphorically speaking, of the church. It's to be the servant of all, a servant leader, one who will give their life for the flock, a leader who sacrifices an increasing measure of their time, talent, and treasure. And I'm here today humbly to tell you that aside from me, the other three elders of our church are really wonderful. I mean, how I got to be an elder at the church is another story altogether. But I'll tell you, I am really stoked about Chris and John and Brooks. Uh, these are brothers that I trust with my life. And that's no small thing for Carolyn and I. Because at any moment, these three brothers could collectively say, you know what, it's time for somebody else to steer the prism ship. And Carolyn and I would have to be able to be at rest about that. We'd have to be able to say, you know what, that's good news for us. The Lord is guiding our lives through these people. Now, I do want to point out here that in this verse, 1 Timothy 3.1, there is clarity that there is structure. I, I know in particularly the millennial generation, uh, this 21st century generation, there is quite a bit of antipathy, antagonism towards organizational structures. And so, you know, they, uh, people will go, I don't like organized religion. That's kind of often what I will hear as a pastor. And I'm always encouraged to tell them we're not very organized at all, so let's get that off the, uh, off the table right away. But there is no way to avoid that inside the context of the New Testament, there is given a structure to the church. 
Now, I get the discomfort and the dissatisfaction associated with hierarchical structures and other structures where you feel like there's no way for you to be a part of making determinations of, about the future or, or being a part of feeling like you're using your gifts or, or the organic nature that is a real joy about being a part of a small church is that people can say, you know what, I really want to do something really fun today. Like Lacey has you know, said, well, we're going to do the sack lunch thing. And we go, great, let's all go sack lunch making. We're going to pass out lunches for homeless people. Sometimes in bigger organizations, it's difficult to get that done. It's one of the reasons I like small church plants and why I'm hoping, by God's grace, as our church grows, we're still going to be able to have a lot of the characteristics of a church that is intimately capable of doing things without having it get caught up in some gargantuan uh, bureaucracy. So I do understand that. But the church in this text is told to organize around leaders because rudderless vessels float aimlessly on the sea. In the absence of leadership, you end up with politics being the leadership. You have manipulation. Even in what some would call the home church movement, which is a real idealistic sort of sense that just because in the first century they did churches at home, we should do churches in homes instead of in buildings. I've seen some of these home church units, and, and I'll tell you, while I appreciate their, the heart they have for being authentically biblical, in those structures there's always somebody in charge. It's just usually the person with the most influence or the most money. And this is how it is with other churches. There's always a strong leader. There's always a leader, whether they are acknowledged or not. In many churches, as you could probably testify to if you've been in a church before, it's usually really successful people or monetarily influential people or people of worldly influence or giftedness. Some churches, it's the people who've been around a long time. Just you get to be there because you've been around long enough to say, it's my turn. Unfortunately, this is not what God had in mind. Now, I'm going to use one picture from our elder training to give you an idea of what we're after here. I refer to it as the leadership boat. We do believe that Scripture calls into a church a visionary leader. We call me the lead pastor. I know the guy in the back looks like Skipper from Gilligan's Island, but... Now, what we differentiate, though, ourselves is saying that our leaders are overseen by this plurality of other elders. We describe it like this. There are many oars, but only one person can steer. Now, the elders ultimately, because they are part of the driving mechanism of the church and collectively, legally, they have the decision-making authority, they have to concur with the direction that the the pilot, the, the pastor, the one who's controlling the rudder, says, I, I'd like us to go to point A. Well, he's got to get the approval of the others who are in the boat in order to make that happen. That isn't, it, it isn't going to go, we're not going to go that direction if the other elders aren't on board. All they simply got to do is take their oars out of the water, and then all you are left with was the pastor who wants to steer a piece of wood in still water. See, you can't function as an organization unless you have a direction set. And our elders have said, listen, we have jobs and families, and we're going to trust that you're going to think with your staff team. And so I have Brooks as an elder, but we have Tammy and Dean, and Shelly as our facilities manager. And we go away twice a year, and we think through and consult with people in our church about varying aspects of our church. 
Where are we weak? Where are we strong? Where do we need to point our resources? What does the next six months, what does the next year, what does the next five years look like? Our elders are saying, we want you to figure out where you think the direction of the church is going, where the Lord wants us to go. But we don't get to just start going there. We bring this to our elders and say, we think this is where the Lord's leading. Ultimately, you've got to tell us whether or not you think that's true too. And if they didn't, then we'd have to rethink the process. Now, it may be in the history of a church that the elders will determine that it's time for new leadership or a new direction. The lead pastor may himself recognize that he wants to go a very different direction than the church is currently headed or in a direction that is really not a good fit for the existing church he's a part of. And he can then concede his leadership. Changing lead pastors doesn't have to be this nasty, ugly thing that it unfortunately has been for so many people's church experience. And I believe in our context, what we're actually establishing is is a possibility that it's going to be a very peaceful, wonderful transition when it's time for me to either retire or move on to some other call that our elders would effectively help me discern whether or not that was the case. Now, lest you think you start reading between the lines, I've got no plans to be anywhere else. I'm bivocational because I have to be and want to be, but I love our church and want to be here. But I hold the church in a very open hand. It's not my church. And so if the Lord wants me elsewhere, and if by his means of grace would use the elders of our church to determine that he wants me elsewhere, Carolyn and I can live with that. We can trust the Lord in that. We continue to want to trust the Lord in that. It is true, and this is where we're going to get to a piece of the gospel component and why we start delving into the character of the people who function as elders in a church. It is true that churches have power struggles. But usually it's when people in leadership cease looking to God for their life and begin to see their role or the mission of the church as an ultimate thing. Tim Keller says in Counterfeit Gods that we know something is an idol to us by virtue of how we act when it's taken from us or it's threatened to be taken from us. And I've seen pastors cling to their jobs, ignoring the legitimate authority of the biblical collection of elders, create chaos in churches by doing so, and all of that is rebellion to authority, all because their job meant more to them than Jesus. I've seen elders, vocational elders, do the same thing and destroy churches in the process. And the reason for this compulsion is that the elder has clung to a role as a defining characteristic of their life, or they see the mission of that particular church is so ultimate that they just can't live with the fact that they're not getting their way. So they throw a temper tantrum or split a church. The elder feels threatened. See, they got into it for the wrong reason. We talk about aspiring to be an elder being a good thing, And it's a good thing as long as you are doing it for the right reason. What you are aspiring to is to be a servant. Agnes Boyajeu, I don't know if you know who Agnes is, she served for three decades in virtual obscurity, living amongst the poor in India. And it wasn't until the 1970s that she won the Nobel Peace Prize as Mother Teresa. So you've heard of Mother Teresa. 
Mother Teresa's famous. Mother Teresa's influential. Mother Teresa meets or met. She's passed and she's now with the Lord. But Mother Teresa is what a lot of people who want leadership aspire to. They, they like the idea of being Teresa. They don't like so much the idea of being Agnes. See, Agnes serves for three decades with nobody paying any attention to her at all. Agnes does it because she wants to help poor people. Teresa, now she probably didn't care much for the alter ego when it was all said and done, but Mother Teresa, well, see, it's easy to say I want to be a leader if those are the trappings that come with it, but that's not what leadership is about. That's certainly not what we're talking about. Our elders are obscure servant leaders. They, they are people who collectively make up the final authority of our church. And so to aspire to it is to a good thing because in and of itself, it is merely a reflection of Christ, which is really the second point I want to make today. Not only is aspiring to be an overseer a good thing, actually being an elder is a noble task. And this is why it's a good thing to aspire to it. It's noble because it is one that reflects the office of the great shepherd. It's a noble task because the elders of any church are, are imperfect under-shepherds of Jesus. He is the lead pastor, the lead shepherd, the lead bishop. Those terms are synonyms. There's no indication from the New Testament at all that a bishop was somebody who had a distinct higher office in the hierarchical structure that made them overseers of multiple churches. The, the terms elder, presbyter, and shepherd, and bishop, pastor, all those things are used collectively to describe an office that is a servant of Jesus, but an underservant. Jesus is really the senior pastor of our church. Jesus is really the chief elder of our church. We collectively are the means of discerning what he wants. The way we discern his guidance is not through a single leader, but the wisdom of many counselors, a community of men who humbly serve each other and the church. Now, we think it's a community or a collective because, as we've already discussed, sinful people need oversight, and that's me. But also because in many ways, our church as people, we all need to know that there's somebody that is caring for us, that somebody who technically is, has the authority of our church, but they're really humbly serving us instead. Because it is true that being an elder is a noble task and seeking it is actually a good thing, an overseer must have as part of their lives, both personally and domestically, a series of characteristics. And this is where we get through verses 2 through 7. The characteristics of an elder are many. And it's important because the function of the elder is to reflect the shepherd leader, servant leader that Jesus was. An elder is to be above reproach. A man who is not a polygamist, that's what it means, one wife, husband of one wife. Sober, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his home well, not a recent convert, thought well of by outsiders. The, the reason for the long list of requirements is to guard against appointing an elder who doesn't have the character 
to think of others as more important than himself, which is, of course, a reflection of merely Jesus, who by God, who by nature, according to Philippians 2, did not say staying with his father in his place of glory was something he would cling to, but he gave himself, sacrificed himself for us. This is why we make powerful men the toilet cleaners of our church, the servant leaders of our church, so they would reflect a a humility that says nothing is too big a task for me. Now, I have to give you an example from something that happened recently, and, and whenever I do this, my children are the first ones to ever point out to me, I love the way you use that analogy to make yourself look really great. And so I want to put on the front side that I only use this as an example, that there are plenty of examples of my life that could demonstrate the opposite. But I was on a baseball trip two weeks ago as the part-time athletic director at our college, and uh, after the game, you know, the players are running around and they're crazy, and and I'm in the dugout just cleaning up because that's one of the things that they ask you to do when you rent fields is clean up your dugout. And a guy came in, one of the players came in, and he said, you shouldn't be doing that. You're the athletic director. And I said, I, I absolutely should be doing it. As a matter of fact, I think I am the one who needs to be doing it because you need to see that Jesus cleans dugouts, that he was willing to do the thing that everybody else says a powerful, strong leader should never do. The, the purpose of being a leader is to demonstrate Christ, which means there's no task too menial for the athletic director. What am I supposed to do? Sit up there and pretend I'm important? No. A leader's supposed to get down and clean the dugout. This is the way the powerful Savior yielded his might and his rights to give his life and be the servant of all. The reason for such a long list of character traits is because the only way a person could have these components as part of their life is if they are humbly walking with and behind Jesus, saturated with the gospel of grace and in constant recognition of their own brokenness, serving others. As well, these characteristics demonstrate a life that is simultaneously lived in community while fully submitted to Scripture as their final authority. When you stare into this collection of characteristics, you see a person that lives well in community with others. Sober is someone who is even-tempered under pressure. Hospitable is someone who regularly has people in their home and others want to be around. Not quarrelsome is a person who isn't threatened by differences of opinion or doesn't regularly find themselves arguing with others. This is why the issue of home life in an elder's life is important. Do his kids respect him? Do his family see him as someone who is gentle and respectable? Is an elder a natural teacher? Not necessarily to get up in front of a church and deliver a flawless sermon kind of teacher, but do they instinctively try to make disciples and influence others through the teaching of Scripture? Are they a lover of money? In light of last week's message, an overseer must be generous in their giving and be a leader in financial sacrifice for the church. Why? Because all of these characteristics are counterintuitive to testosterone-filled men who throughout the ages have abused power and subjugated others through their ruling. Jesus was different, and these characteristics manifested in our community are beautiful reflections of the character and glory of our Savior, Jesus. Ronald Reagan 
the late Ronald Reagan, whose presidential library exists here in Simi Valley and at which I have spent way too many hours over the past few years, as my dissertation uh, was about the political and religious rhetoric of Ronald Reagan. And he was fond of referring to America as a city on a hill. He said he was referencing American colonist John Winthrop, which is true, but John Winthrop was actually quoting the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Well, I I have news for the late Reagan, and he's found it out, I'm sure, in eternity. Our country, America, is not a city on a hill. People who know and walk with Jesus are. America is not the light of the world. Believers in Jesus are. We are merely representatives. We are here to point to Jesus. This is why we exist Enjoying God and glorifying Him forever are the two things that the Westminster Catechism says are the chief ends of human beings. To glorify God, to have Him be seen in us through our acts of service, through whatever we say and do and think. This is what Jesus is about. And in particular, when we talk about who is going to govern the church, God has said, I'm going to put people who maybe by virtue of their personality or their temperament or their gender could do what many have done for many and many and many a moon. And that is make others feel like they're being ruled over. But instead, what he's called that community of men to is to be exhibitors of the humble servant nature of Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many. Let us pray to that end, that is, we move forward as a church, that our elders would actually reflect that servant-heartedness. Father, today we recognize, even as we talk about the role of the elder in the church, the need for all of us to have most important to us you and your purposes for our life and not whatever satisfaction we would derive from serving or leading, we recognize our own propensity to use others to make ourselves feel better instead of serving others. And Jesus, you've called every single one of us in this church to to model and to live in such a way as to not only know the joy of being a servant, but actually the joy of being seen as a representative of yours serving others with our whole life. And so we, we thank you for that mutual call that we all share, but it is going to require that we experience the tender leading of you, our great shepherd. We, play that, we pray that, the, that your spirit would move in our church and continue to enable us to be led by men who are soft-hearted before you and love you and care for others and it be a, an amazing reflection of power yielded for the benefit of others, as is seen in you, Jesus. For we pray these things in your name. Amen.